Okay, well, we're uh, continuing with some of the background of Isaiah, the book of Isaiah. And uh, I'll start by uh, telling you a little bit about some, someone you probably have heard of named George Handel. Some people say Handel, but I say Handel. Uh, it's a German name. George Handel, you know, wrote The Messiah. Uh, a lot of you probably know The Messiah, the oratorio, and a lot of it was based off of the book of Isaiah and the story of Christ in the Gospels, but many of the words come from Isaiah. And uh, it's interesting to me that the Messiah is still performed by unbelievers. Uh, Handel has not been canceled by the seculture. And so people fill auditoriums around Christmas time and they all sit there and they listen to Isaiah and the Gospel of Luke being sung and all these things. And they end and they clap their hands and they all stand up and everybody loves hearing Handel's Messiah. And so I find that fascinating because they're all listening to Isaiah, but they have no idea what it means. If they really understood what it meant, uh, they would cancel him. They would not be clapping. Well, apparently, uh, some of you might know this, uh, but Handel lived in England for a long time, and so I think he became a British And so England claims him, and so in 1784, it was his 100th birthday. He was not alive at the time, but it was his 100th birthday in 1784. And so in London and all over England, they were performing all of these um, uh, showings of the Messiah. And so John Newton, the one who was the pastor, the one who wrote Amazing Grace, John Newton decided that he was going to preach a 50-sermon series based on Handel's Messiah. So it was an exposition of of Handel, but really he was expositing Isaiah and expositing the Gospels. And he did that because he also realized that all of these people were listening to the oratorio and they had no idea what those words meant. And so that's also why we are talking about Isaiah and trying to understand more of the background to Isaiah because I think there are many Christians who know the words about the Emmanuel child or how the government will be on his shoulders and he will reign forever and ever. You know all those words, but what did those things mean in Isaiah's context, in Isaiah's day? And so that's why we're spending some time talking about the historical background. So I think just like in 1784, it's the same today. We need to understand what's happening uh, in Isaiah's time. So we began that last time. Uh, We looked at the map, and anybody remember what was the major empire in control at the time of Isaiah? It's one of these written up here. (laughs) Assyria. So Assyria was the major empire in the time of Isaiah. So much of what happens in the book of Isaiah is related to Assyria and the threat of Assyria. And so remember, we talked last week about how Israel, the nation of Israel, is stuck between Egypt and the mighty empires of Assyria and Babylon, and Egypt is also a great empire. 
And so Israel is not an empire. Israel is a relatively tiny nation. And so they're getting caught in all the battles in between and all the alliances. And so God is using all of this to accomplish his purpose for his people. He's going to judge Israel and he's going to save Israel. He's going to bring Assyria and Assyria thinks they're just trying to conquer so that they can get to Egypt. But God is using Assyria because of the idolatry of the northern kingdom and things like that. So, so we'll talk more about all of these kinds of things today. So we're going to back up first to about 1000 B.C. really quickly. And around 1000 B.C., it's 1010, David becomes king. And David reigns for 40 years, so that's up till 970. And then Solomon becomes king, and he reigns for 40 years. Um, And so then that takes us to 930. So anybody know what happens uh, after Solomon dies? You can try without looking at your handout, but then you can look at your handout if you want. What happens after Solomon dies? Yes, we have the split of the kingdom. We have a civil war with Rehoboam and Jeroboam. And so uh, the nation of Israel splits into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom and the southern kingdom. And so this is important because when you're reading Isaiah or really other books in the Bible too, uh, when you see the name Israel, if we're talking about this time in Isaiah's day, We're talking about the northern kingdom. We're not talking about the nation as a whole. And when you read Judah, we're talking about the southern kingdom. And so Israel also, the north, goes by the names Ephraim, which is the tribe that represents the north. Uh, It goes by Samaria, which is the capital. So remember in Isaiah 7, they kept talking about Samaria. Well, it's talking about the northern kingdom. And then we have Judah. In the south, which you know can be referred to by its capital, which is Jerusalem. Uh, here's another question: uh, Does anybody know which other tribe was a part of the kingdom of Judah? Chris, Benjamin. Good job. Yeah. So technically, the tribe of Benjamin gets kind of absorbed into the tribe of Judah. Uh, well, not into the tribe, but into the kingdom. And so the 10, 10, north, 10 other tribes are going to kind of disappear. And we'll talk about that, what's going to happen. But they're going to disappear. And then all that's left is the tribes of Benjamin and Judah. And so you have uh, the territory of Judah. And then you have Benjamin is a 12-mile strip, 12 miles uh, north and south. Uh, Benjamin's a little strip of land And Benjamin and Judah are separated by the Valley of Gehenna, which Jesus references in the New Testament when he talks about hell. Uh, The Valley of Gehenna is where they offered child sacrifices to the god Moloch. And so it kind of became a cursed area. It was a valley. And um, because it became known as a cursed, you know, kind of like a haunted area, uh, they started to throw the trash, and they would throw the dead animals and the dead people, the, the criminals that would be executed. They'd all get thrown to the Valley of Gehenna. 
Um, so that's right to the north of the border of Judah. Um, so that's, that becomes the picture for what Jesus uses to describe hell. Uh, you know, trash, uh, a landfill of trash that is on fire and where there are worms constantly. And so Jesus uses that to describe hell. So uh, there's Benjamin, there's Judah. They are the southern kingdom. So let's go back to Isaiah chapter 1, verse 1, and we find out more about when Isaiah is prophesying in his ministry. It's very nice that we have this very clear statement of when Isaiah lived and proph- or prophesied. Isaiah 1, verse 1 says, The vision of Isaiah the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. Uh, I'll stop there for a second. So he's in Judah. He's in Jerusalem. So the events that we're going to talk about today, a lot of them relate to the northern kingdom, but that's not where Isaiah is. Isaiah is in the south, and so what he is, who he is prophesying to is the people of Judah. So uh, he sees concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Okay, so these are the four kings that are alive in the time of Isaiah's ministry. Um, You may know, you can look there if you want, but Isaiah 6 verse 1 says, in the year King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting on the throne. Uh, So the year King Uzziah died. So most people think that chapter 6 is his calling as a prophet. This is when he begins his his ministry of prophecy. And so he begins his ministry the year that King Uzziah dies. So right at the end of Uzziah. And then... um, the rest of the kings, Jotham, Ahaz, Hezekiah. Okay, so that tells us that he begins in 740, because that is when King Uzziah dies. And he's going to prophesy for 50 years, so until 690 BC. Okay, so we are in the 700s of Old Testament times, the 700s BC. So when you read Isaiah, You have to read him in the context of 700s B.C. And so he is prophesying around the same time as uh, Hosea, Amos, and Jonah, who are in the north. So Hosea, Amos, and Jonah are his contemporaries. I mean, maybe he knew them. Maybe he was friends with them. I don't know. But they were living at the same time, but they were in the north, and they're prophesying about the north. And obviously, Jonah goes to Nineveh, to the capital of Assyria, to prophesy. So he's alive at the same time as um, Hosea, Amos, and Jonah. And then at the same time, also in the south, is Micah. So um, Isaiah and Micah are in the same place and at the same time. So most likely they knew each other. And 
There are some similarities between Isaiah and Micah. Um, let's, let's read it. I think we'll have time to read. Isaiah chapter 2. Let me turn to Isaiah chapter 2. I'm going to read this fast. Isaiah 2, 1 to 5. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall decide disputes for many peoples. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither that shall they learn war any more. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. You don't have to get every detail of that, but uh, hopefully you, you understand something of what that's about. And now let's look at Micah, uh, one of the minor prophets. So he's near the end of the Old Testament. Uh, Micah chapter 4. it's not too late, you could also keep your finger in Isaiah chapter 2, but you don't have to. But uh, Micah chapter 4, I won't read the whole thing, but I think you'll get the point when I start reading. Uh, In verse 1, Micah 4 verse 1, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains, and it shall be lifted up above the hills, and people shall flow to it. And many nations shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. So I'll stop there. But you get the point, I think, hopefully, that they're almost exactly the same. Everything that I've read so far is the same, and then Micah changes some things um, uh, at the end of verse 4 and verse 5. So verse 5 is different between Micah and Isaiah. But it's uh, interesting to me that there are these similarities. So did, did Micah hear Isaiah's sermon and say, wow, that was a good sermon. I need to, I need to preach that sermon and I'll, I'll modify it some. Or, um, or did Isaiah use Micah's material? We don't really know. Uh, I think Micah used Isaiah, but it doesn't really matter. So they are, they are friends, probably. They are together at the same time. And Isaiah seems to be uh, in the court of the king. Isaiah seems to have access to the king. And we see him over and over going to the kings and preaching to them and rebuking them. So it could be that Micah was more amongst uh, outside and Isaiah was more uh, in, the, in the palace or Uh, talking to the king. We don't really know that much, but same time. Okay, so now let's talk about Assyria. So uh, Assyria comes to power in 745 BC um, by basically uh, starting to take control of Babylon. So we're going to go through Assyria. We're going to go through... um, 
these dates there, and uh, you don't have to remember all of these dates, but I think it's like setting the scene, uh, like when you learn about World War II, and uh, you probably start by learning about World War I, and the Treaty of Versailles, and all this stuff, and how it affected Germany, and how Hitler comes to power. So all of that is important to understand why World War II happened. So you don't have to memorize all this, but hopefully it paints a picture, it sets a scene for why all these things are happening in Isaiah's time. So uh, the first Assyrian king in Isaiah's time is named Tiglath-Pileser, Tiglath-Pileser III. And he's the king at the same time as Uzziah is king of Judah. So he takes control of Babylon. Um, and so now Assyria is the mighty empire. And he comes for all of this territory. And so in 734, he is coming after all these people. He's marching. He defeats Syria. Uh, he defeats Phoenicia, which is a little country down here. He's, he wants to take over Egypt. And so in 734, he invades Israel, the northern kingdom. And so he takes some of their cities, and he begins taking Israelites into exile, taking them to Assyria. Uh, turn to Second Kings. You can read about this. Second Kings chapter 15. Second Kings fifteen twenty nine. Fifteen twenty nine. In the days of Pekah, king of Israel, Tiglath Pileser, king of Assyria, came and captured Ijon, Abel, Bethmaka, Janoah, Kedesh, Hazor, Gilead, and Galilee. Notice that Galilee, all the land of Naphtali, and he carried the people captive to Assyria. So he Invades Galilee, the land of Naphtali. So go to Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah chapter 9. You probably know these words and you know this chapter. Isaiah 9 verse 1. But there will be no gloom for her who was in anguish. In the former time he brought into contempt the land of Zebulun, and the land of Naphtali. But in the latter time, he has made glorious the way of the sea, the land beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the nations, or Galilee of the Gentiles. Um, so one of the reasons that there's this land of gloom in Galilee is because Galilee is the place that is the first place that Tiglath-Pileser is invading Israel and taking Israel into exile. And it's called Galilee of the Nations or Galilee of the Gentiles uh, because of these kinds of things that would happen. Um, when all of these people are invading Israel, Galilee is the first stop. Galilee is the first stop on the border. 
And so Galilee is going to be the place that always gets invaded, (laughs) always gets captured first, always their people that get taken away first, and um, always the place where the foreigners start to settle and start to take over. And so that was happening with Assyria. It's going to happen with Alexander and the Greek Empire and the Roman Empire. And uh, so, so that's the kind of thing that is a background even in the New Testament, that Galilee is the land of the more Gentile area of Israel, the more unclean place in Israel. Um, and so that's why Isaiah is saying, out of this darkness, out of this land that is constantly, they're the people getting beat up all the time, out of here will come the Messiah, uh, the Savior that Isaiah is prophesying about. So that's one little place where you see um, the relevance of understanding some of these events in Assyria. Another thing that we can learn from this is that there were many exiles that happened in the Old Testament. Um, So maybe you've heard of the exile People talk about the exile when Babylon comes and destroys Jerusalem. And that's like the main event at the end. But there were many exiles. And so this is just the first exile of Assyria. And so already God is sending his judgment on his people. And already God is warning them to turn. And he's telling them it's going to get worse. It's going to get worse. Um, And they don't listen. So there are many exiles. And then... So let's continue. Then uh, after Tiglath-Pileser comes this new king, Shalmaneser. Shalmaneser basically overlaps with King Ahaz, the king of Judah. Um, so Shalmaneser is the next king, and the king of Israel, his name is Hoshea, uh, he rebels against the Assyrians, against Shalmaneser. He makes a treaty with Egypt. Um, okay, I'll ask a question just to review, even though I don't, don't feel bad if you don't remember. But last week, Ahaz in Isaiah 7, remember, made a treaty with Assyria. Um, who did the king of Israel make a treaty with? Do you remember? King of Israel at the time was Pekah. Remember, okay, maybe this will jog your memory, where he says the head of Pekah, or the head of Rezin, who is the king, is Damascus. Damascus is in Syria. Okay, so it's okay that you don't remember that. But um, Judah had made an alliance with Assyria, King Ahaz, and uh, the king of Israel had made alliance with Syria, Well, now the king of Israel is making an alliance uh, with Egypt, okay? So he's trying to team up with the other superpower so that he doesn't get destroyed. But, of course, that's not going to make Assyria very happy. So now Shalmaneser comes, and he's going to come and invade the north again. Uh, So Tiglath-Pileser had kind of taken over these cities, 
the next guy, he comes. So now here we are in 722. That's the next exile on your outline. 722, we have the whole kingdom destroyed, wiped out, taken over. And so the capital, Samaria, is destroyed. Okay? So all of these things that Hosea and Amos were prophesying about, that all comes to pass. So that's not directly related to Isaiah, but Isaiah is going to use those events, right? He's going to say, look, the prophets warned about that, and it happened, so you guys better listen to me now, because the same thing is going to happen to you guys if you keep rebelling against the Lord. Okay, the next king of Assyria is Sargon, Sargon II, uh, from 721 to 705. Um, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 20. Isaiah 20. This is not like uh, the most important prophecy Isaiah ever prophesied, but um, here's another example of how understanding the context will help you understand a passage in Isaiah. So Sargon comes, and Sargon is fighting with the Philistines who are kind of on the edge. They're on the border of of Israel. So Sargon at this time is fighting against the Philistines. Verse 1 says of Isaiah 20, In the year that the commander-in-chief sent by Sargon, king of Assyria, came to Ashdod, Ashdod is in Philistia, and fought against it and captured it. Okay, so that's the background. Verse 2, at that time, the Lord spoke by Isaiah, the son of Amoz, saying, Go, loose the sackcloth from your waist, take off your sandals from your feet. And he did so, walking naked and barefoot. Then the Lord said, As my servant Isaiah has walked naked and barefoot for three years, as a sign and a portent against Egypt and Cush, so shall the king of Assyria lead away the Egyptian captives and the Cushite exiles. Uh, So that'll be a sermon for another day, but um, we see that God uses these events to warn about how the king of Assyria has captured the Philistines. He's coming for Egypt and Cush, and Isaiah is a visible sign by taking off his outward clothing. He wasn't literally naked without any clothing, but he had uh, his, his kind of long toga undergarment. So that's what they would wear. They would wear the undergarment, and they would wear their, their um, main item of clothing. And so he was taking that off. And so he would come out to prophesy in his nightgown, basically. And that was a sign to the people listening about uh, what God was going to do to Egypt. So all of that is from the background of what's happening with Sargon. But now let's get to the most important event, uh, which was with King Sennacherib. So King Sennacherib is the last Assyrian king of Isaiah's ministry, starting in 705, and it's around the same time as Hezekiah. Okay, so we have more political alliances going on here. So Ahaz, king of Judah, 
had made an alliance with Assyria, remember? Hezekiah breaks the alliance with Assyria in 705 BC. That's when Sennacherib comes on the scene. So that doesn't make Assyria happy. Assyria is now angry. And Assyria has conquered. Remember, they've conquered. So we could kind of just erase them because they don't really exist anymore. And Assyria has conquered them and they are coming for Judah and they are angry. Um, So Sennacherib comes and he attacks a city called Lahish. And the reason I tell you the city is because you can look at this picture. And we have this, it's called a relief, a relief. It's basically like a wall, a wall of art and writing. It's called the Lahish relief. And it's spelled like that. And this whole relief tells the whole story of this battle with Sennacherib coming and invading. This is a city in Judah. So Lachish is a city in Judah. He's invading Judah, and he invades this city. And you can look at the whole thing. You can even look at it on the Internet. Uh, and you can look at all the pictures, and it tells you the whole story. And so at this point, this picture that I, I took the, the shot of, this one is where... You can see on the left the Assyrian soldiers with the pointy hats and the beards. They have captured these Judeans, these Israelites. Um, Those little people are the children. So they are Judean children, and they are being taken off into exile. They're taken away to Assyria. And the people on the right are the Judeans. Uh, citizens of Lahish, and the, these are men that are being tortured. So the men are being tortured, the, the children are being forced to watch, and um, the children are going to get um, carried away. So that's what happened, and that, that's just one part of the whole story of how they invaded and took over, and they're, they're taking them away. And in the writing of it, when, when they the parts where they write things about the story. This is what Sennacherib says about himself. He says, Because Hezekiah, king of Judah, would not submit to my yoke, I came up against him. And by the force of arms and the might of my power, I took 46 of his strong cities. And of the smaller towns which were scattered about, I took and plundered a countless number. From these places I took and carried off 200,000 persons, old and young, male and female, together with horses and mules, donkeys and camels, oxen and sheep, a countless multitude. So there's a picture of him taking off the old and the young and the countless multitude. Okay, so Assyria is invading. They take this city. They take these many people Then Sennacherib comes against Jerusalem. A lot of you probably know this story. Um, The story is in Isaiah 36 and 37. He also tells the story in 2 Kings. So Assyria is surrounding Jerusalem. They are mocking the armies of Judah. And King Hezekiah 
he knows that they're about to die. So Hezekiah goes into the temple, and he's got this letter mocking the Lord from the Assyrians. And he goes and spreads out the letter before the Lord in the temple, and he prays and he begs God that he would save Judah. So Hezekiah does the opposite of Ahaz, remember? When Ahaz was afraid of Assyria, he made an alliance with Assyria. When Hezekiah is afraid, he goes and prays to the Lord. So Hezekiah cries out to the Lord, and Isaiah comes and he says, Sennacherib will not capture Jerusalem. They're surrounding you, but they will not take you. And so that night, the angel of the Lord comes, and the angel wipes out the camp of the Assyrians and 185,000 of the soldiers die. And so Jerusalem is miraculously saved by God and Isaiah prophesied about this um, and answered Hezekiah's prayer. Now, we also have an artifact there um, called Sennacherib's Prism. And this is Sennacherib, basically his chronicles, written about his life and telling all about his military battles and everything. Uh, So this is the historical evidence we have of Sennacherib and what he did. And on that prism, it says about this story, it tells the whole story, I came and I surrounded Jerusalem. And then it says, he himself... Hezekiah, I locked up within Jerusalem, his royal city, like a bird in a cage. Okay, so he's got Jerusalem locked up like a bird in a cage. He's the cat, and he's going to eat that bird. But that's the end of the story on the, on the Sennacherib prism. Anybody want to guess why that's the end of the story? Leo, you look, you know the answer. Right. 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 He gets murdered by his own sons. Yeah. Yeah. So who's going to write the chronicles of your great military battles and include the part where 185,000 of your soldiers got killed. He's not going to write that. He's, he wants to brag about himself in this, this prism. Um, it's like, uh, you guys probably know, uh, last week the, the Russian uh, rover on the moon, they said, it ceased to exist, right? It ceased to exist. They don't say like, well, it, yeah, it crashed because we messed up, we did something wrong. No, it just ceased to exist. And so that's what Sennacherib is saying. Like, I had him locked up like a bird in a cage. Uh, and then, I don't know, something happened, I don't know. You know. He doesn't tell us. So that's his propaganda. Um, but we know from the Bible that Assyria uh, was thwarted in their attempts uh, to capture Jerusalem. So all of that is happening in Isaiah's time. Um, all these things that we've talked about uh, today. So Sennacherib, he was the last king of Assyria in Isaiah's day. And as Leo said, Assyria after that starts to get weaker and weaker. Sennacherib gets killed by his sons. 
And then Babylon makes a return. Babylon starts to take power and overcome Assyria. So then after Isaiah's life, in the days of people like Ezekiel and Jeremiah, we have the Babylonian Empire that's in power. So those are the dates that that are on here. Those are the stories. Those are the events um, with these four Assyrian kings that all will have relevance when we go through Isaiah. Um, So I don't expect you, again, to remember uh, all these battles that took place and when they took place, but when I'm preaching a sermon one day and I say, Sennacherib came, then I'm like, oh, yeah, I know Sennacherib. I heard about him. Or when I talk about Tiglath-Pileser, you will have some concept of who that man is. So uh, let me finish by giving one reason that I think it's also helpful to know some of the historical background, and that is because I think it's very helpful to study the archaeological evidence that exists for these kinds of things. Unbelieving scholars and archaeologists, they like to claim that um, before the seven hundred, yeah, before the seven to eight hundreds, we don't have anything reliable. So, in other words, they would say all that stuff about David and Solomon, it's made up. We don't know. We can't tell. It's all just religious propaganda, just like Sennacherib's prism is propaganda. That's what unbelievers would say. But I think it helps to know uh, that these things exist because it tells us that what Isaiah wrote and what Kings writes is what happened. Um, Lachish did get invaded by a guy named um, Sennacherib. Uh, These things did happen. We have evidence outside the Bible that they happened. So we can conclude from that not, well, uh, well, since this is, this is their argument, we don't have evidence about the 900s, therefore it didn't happen. We can conclude instead we have evidence of the 700s, and it is the same as what Kings writes. It fits with Kings. Therefore, we, we don't conclude 900s didn't happen. We conclude Kings is accurate. Kings is writing what actually took place. The Old Testament is telling us what really happened. And just because we don't have archaeological evidence for what happened in the 900s doesn't mean it didn't happen. We can rely upon Kings because we see that Kings gets backed up by later events. Um, So uh, we have a lot of reasons to trust the historical record of the Bible as accurate history. Uh, So that's just one of the things. Now you know. Now you can bring up the Lachish relief or the Sennacherib prison if you're ever talking to someone. And you can have more confidence that what the Bible is writing as history is actually history. So let's, uh, let's pray. Let's conclude. Lord, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word comes to pass, even as we've seen how Isaiah prophesied about Sennacherib. 
And uh, we thank you, Lord, that you bring your word to pass. We thank you uh, for your great power. And we pray, Lord, that we would have continued trust, reliance upon your word and upon you. Help us to worship you. We thank you that we can come together again in a few minutes and worship you corporately and hear from your word. And we pray, Lord, that we would come with humility, trembling at your word, with a great trust that what you say is true and is what we need. And so we ask for your blessing in Jesus' name. Amen.